I want to tell you that I did in honor, um, I don't know if you've seen those quick change shows where somebody like changes dresses like really quickly. Well, I'm going to do a chain, a slow change this morning. You're going to see this shirt become from this color all to this color <laughs> over a period of time. And I, I don't want you to get distracted by how much I will perspire up here. There's nothing that a few IVs at Community North aren't going to solve after this. So I perspire in a normal day. So just don't worry about me. Okay. As you see the, the, man melt in front of you. Yeah, exactly. Um, the past 18 months, everything got shaken. Our confidence in our economy got shaken. Our confidence in our medical community and being able to protect us got shaken. Our confidence in our political system certainly got shaken. Our confidence in people as race and a multitude of other issues seemed to divide us more and more than we've ever been divided before. Personally, my, my personal world got shaken pretty badly in terms of business got shaken up. I had personal health struggles, family health struggles, and my international ministry in Ukraine was cut off because I simply couldn't get to Ukraine. So everything changed for me in a huge, huge way. There was also a lot of silly things that I found out that I leaned on for peace and for comfort that also changed they also got shaken. See, up until 2020, I traveled a ton, about 150 to 175,000 miles a year. I got comfortable with travel, I found out, when it was taken away from me. I liked the time away. I liked the quiet time to read. I realized how much I leaned on my travel time as kind of an escape from things. That was one thing I realized. I also leaned on my status. I had status in all the airlines and all the hotels. So I got pretty used to every place I go, whether I got on a plane or I got in a hotel, you had that little moment where they'd go, hello, Mr. Zanako, welcome back. Thank you for your two million miles. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 don't say anything. I'm just like everybody else. <laughs> Until they started treating me just like everybody else. And I realized how comfortable I had gotten in the status. I am diamond on Delta, and that means that there's a dedicated line just for Delta, just for us diamonds, so that all in my history, it's never taken me more than three or four minutes to reach my people until this year. I tried to call to go to Ukraine. I called three times in Delta. The, the least I had to wait was 50 minutes. The longest was an hour and 50 minutes. I'm not so special anymore, and I don't like that. <laughs> One word, our word for this year has been turn aside. We got it from the book of Exodus and the story of Moses. Moses sees a burning bush in the wilderness, which is kind of weird, and he sees and has to make some kind of a response. And we see his response in verse three of chapter three. It says, so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. What a response. I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight. A fire presents itself to Moses and an action has to follow. Some kind of action has to follow. He is either going to turn and run away, he is going to be afraid and leave, or he is going to turn towards that fire. And it is when Moses turned towards the fire that God reveals himself. It is when Moses turned towards God that weird got defined. Random all of a sudden took on purpose. What was scary became powerful. 
And what started as confusion actually turned into revelation. All by turning towards God. When Moses turned towards God, he was no longer shaken. In the fire that comes into our lives, we face the same choice that Moses did. How will we respond? Will we turn away and therefore be shaken? Or will we turn aside to God who cannot be shaken? And it's this thought that captures our title for this week, which is turn aside from what cannot stand to who cannot fail. Now, if you would, please stand with me as I just read the passage that we're gonna be in. As we read the word of God together, we're gonna be in 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. If you go to Revelation, turn left a little bit, you'll get there. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. Let me open us in prayer. Lord, these passages hold invitation to you. Thank you. They hold invitation to you that we want to receive this morning. And so I pray that nothing, not the warmth, not me, not anything will get in the way of us receiving what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and be seated. When I first became a follower of Jesus Christ, a man named Doug Long invited me to start to memorize the scriptures. We would meet in his office every week and we would share and memorize and recite passages to one another. I went on to learn that Doug Long was one of the smartest men I will ever meet in my life and had a near photographic memory. So the exercise was way more challenging for me than it was for him. But that exercise is something that I carry forward today. The memorizing of scripture is one of the most foundational things and I will be forever grateful to Doug for helping me establish that in me. This first John passage that I just read is one of the first passages Doug Long challenged me to remember. This passage has been a close companion of mine for every step of my journey with Jesus Christ. I want to share my journey with this passage I want to share in the wonder of the word of God if we will journey with it. First, like with my memorization, we're going to study the text itself because the text itself carries incredible truth and power. And then after looking at the words, after looking at the words that themselves carry power, we are going to look at the backstory. We're going to look at the context. Backstory matters. I'm sure some of you have been watching, many, many, hopefully many of you have been watching The Chosen. I was saddened to hear that some criticism had risen up against Chosen because they were including some backstory on some of the characters that were not in the Bible. For instance, when they told the story of the leper being healed by Jesus. In the scriptures, it's just a couple of short verses. A leopard shows up, Jesus heals him and sends him away. The Chosen chose to add backstory to the story. The leper is found going into town. He covers himself up because he knows he cannot be seen because if he is known as a leopard, he will be sent out because he's not allowed to be around anybody. He goes to a pawn shop and he has this beautiful, beautiful set of tools, which meant he was a great craftsman. 
and he's trying to sell those tools to the pawn shop owner. The pawn shop owner looks and sees that these are fantastic tools and he wonders why the man would want to part with them. We know why. It's because he can no longer use them. It's because these are the last possession that he has in the world. He will no longer be able to work and provide for his family. And so what he is doing is selling the last thing of value he has in his life to give those proceeds to his family and the last act of love that he has before he will have to leave his family forever. And it's gut-wrenching to see the man's despair in his eyes and the helplessness of his plea. And people complained. That's not in the Bible. You shouldn't have shown that. I'm sorry. I couldn't disagree more. We certainly do not know if this was the exact backstory of the leper. What we do know is he did have a backstory. And you have to think about the backstory. In order to understand what Jesus brought, you have to understand the sorrow and the pain and the suffering the people were in that he healed in order to understand the power and relief and redemption that he brought. Another one they showed was Jesus walking in Jerusalem and all of a sudden he looks up and he sees somebody being crucified just outside the city and you see a moment where he looks up in sadness. And I never thought of that before. Jesus wasn't the first man to be crucified. He had to have walked by men as they were suffering on the cross and all of a sudden I realized you knew what was coming. And still you chose to go ahead. And I found myself in tears. Back story is critical. It matters. Likewise, to fully understand the power and the hope and the promise of the passage we are looking at today, we have to look more completely at the backstory. While we do not know every detail, we know enough to allow us to look closer at the author's life. We can look at John's life and heart, and the treasure of these words, when we do that, is magnified. So first, we're going to look at the passage itself. Then we're going to go to the backstory, as John is the writer, into the culture that he lived in as he wrote, into what shape was Christianity in when he wrote these words, into what did the world think, into even the form in which he chose to write these words in. And I think you'll see as we do this, the words pick up new power and magnified and the glory of God will be magnified in this. So side, quick side note of encouragement. Many of you do not know my history. I have preached for 25 years. I have preached for a long time and I did not become a believer until I was age 25 years old. I never touched the scriptures until I was 25 years old. So I do not have the history with the scriptures, that the rich history of the scriptures that many of you have and were raised with. I did not go to Bible school. I did not go to Bible college and certainly not to seminary. I have no formal training in the scriptures and I'm not special in terms of intellect. Many of you, and this is not false humility, are smarter than I am. My point is this. Everything I'm about to share with you that I have learned is simply from spending time with the word of God and going where it has taken me. It's just where God leads me and questions he raises up in me and then using the thousands of resources you have available to you just like I do that are at our fingertips to find out these things that bring the word to life. 
And in doing that, I would encourage you, please, all it takes is a little bit of time and giving your heart. And if you will do that, you will not believe the revelation that you will receive over time and the reward from diving in. Okay, with that long introduction, let's start with the passage itself. John 1, 1 John 1, 1 says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Okay, right off the bat, the subject of the verse is the word of life. It's at the end of the verse, but that's the subject, the word of life. And John goes back and says, the word of life was in the beginning. We have heard the word of life. The word of life is Jesus. He was in the beginning. We have heard him. We have seen the word of life. We have touched the word of life. This is similar to the way that John opens up his gospel when he says in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And when we read this word, word in English, it's not particularly exciting. It's not particularly impressive. You kind of go, oh, Jesus was the word. That's cool. But nothing really earth shattering there. However, but in the Greek, the word that John chose to use for word is logos. And in John's day, there was no bigger word than logos. Everybody would have understand what he was talking about. It was an earth-shattering term. Everybody would have known claiming Jesus was the logos would have been controversial to everyone. It would have been insulting to others. It would have been confusing to others. It would have been everything, but all I know is it would have gotten everybody's attention. Virtually everyone understood the claim that John was making when he said, Jesus is the Logos. You only find Logos in John's writings, and it is because John has a different purpose as a writer. These were special, there were special events that John got to see that no one else, only two others got to see Jesus do. Special things in Jesus' ministry. And it seemed purposeful that Jesus chose three in particular because it was always one or all of John, Peter, and James. These three got to see things that no one else got to see. The transfiguration, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the resurrection of a little girl. John is also described as the disciple who Jesus loved. We also know that it's John that Jesus chose to entrust his mother to after he would be gone. It is clear that John had an especially close relationship and unique relationship with Jesus. John wrote to establish something. This is late in his life. He wrote to establish something before he died. He wrote to something to testify to something that only he could testify to because the other two that could testify to it are already dead. And John has a specific purpose to write and to testify. And he is saying, I need you to know the uniqueness, the supremacy of Jesus. I need you to know that he was deity. John wanted all of us to know that Jesus is God. Now, what did choosing the word logos have to do with that purpose? What did choosing the word logos, how did that drive that home? The word logos would have been known by every political leader of the time, every religious leader, every philosopher, and every emperor. 
At the time of John's writing, logos was used to explain everything that was unexplainable at the time. Everything they did not understand, everything that was too big for them to describe, everything that they could not explain, everything they could not tie the dots to, they gave credit to this great force called Logos. Philosophers said it was the Logos that explained all thought and reason. They also said that it was Logos that described the power of the universe. The Stoics who were trying to explain why there's pain and suffering in the world, they used Logos. They said, oh, it's the Logos. They always used Logos. Then the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius used Logos to describe the unknown principles in nature. Even the ancient Hebrews used the equivalent of Logos to describe the different manifestations of God. Do you see what John was doing by choosing Logos? At the time, anything that was beyond explanation, anything that was beyond human understanding, anything that they could not explain and tie together, Anything they had not defined or they had not seen was attributed to Logos. And John is taking that term known in every school of thought, in every culture, in every every corner of the thought of his world. And he says, everything that you do not know, everything that you cannot explain, everything that you cannot control, everything that you are seeking to learn, everything you cannot find is finally explained and it is all explained explained in the Logos, and the Logos is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And I've seen him, and I've heard him, and I've touched him. And I'm telling you, the Logos has arrived. John's opening statement in this chapter is huge, just huge. Then John continues in verse 2. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We know that Jesus came to save us from our sins. We know that. It's also clear from Scripture that Jesus had some very specific other roles that he came for. Roles like to inaugurate the kingdom. Roles like to destroy the works of Satan. And to do what John is saying here. Jesus came to make God knowable and known to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus. John 1, 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus came so that we could know God. John's first point is that Jesus answers to all the world every unanswerable question. And he was, pro- he was physically among us in order to be known by us. And in knowing Jesus, you now know God. Do you see the hugeness of these statements? I have seen the power of God revealed through the person of Jesus. You know I go to Ukraine and I minister to some of the disabled and the parents of the disabled are in a culture where nobody cares about them. They get no help, they get no comfort, and in fact, people avoid them. And at the last day of the retreat, I'm always asked to speak to the parents and their question, we can all imagine what it is. 
Where is God in this? Is he mad at me? Is my child like this because I have sinned? Why? How does, does God run like people run from my children? Is he repulsed by my children like people are? Can you imagine the pain of that? And I tried for a couple of years to answer all of those things theologically, and it meant nothing. What worked was when I took him on a stroll with Jesus and said, let's just look at the encounters of Jesus because this scripture says that Jesus, if we want to know what God thinks, we have to look in the face of Jesus. So when we look at John the Baptist and we see that he was the greatest man born of a woman and yet he suffered, we can look and say, your suffering is not because of your sin. When we look at Jesus, heal a leper and touch them, we can say, no, God doesn't run from your children. He runs to your children. And when we see Jesus cry outside of Bethany, we can say, God cries with you. He does not make fun of you and does not ridicule and is not thoughtless of you. And it's in Jesus that they get comfort of this one truth. God is good. It doesn't answer everything else, but it does answer. I know what God is like and he is good. John is saying, you want to know God? He's fully explained and revealed in Jesus. And then having made these proclamations, John then moves to an invitation. Verse three, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Because the Logos and because the Logos has made himself known to us physically, you have the possibility of fellowship. Fellowship, translated from the word koinonia. It means to have in common with. Because of Jesus, because of the revelation of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, we now have the chance to have in common, be in communion with each other. And better than that, we have the chance to be in common, in communion with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then John ends his introduction to this letter with these words. These things I write so that our joy may be made complete. John's joy is not complete until he shares all that he has seen, touched, and heard. It is in the sharing of Jesus that he and we are made complete. These are powerful words on their own, without any backstory. And just by simply memorizing, they impacted my life. But when we look at the backstory of these words, it gives them even more power for us. And not just then, but here today. See, as I journeyed forward in discipleship and hit some, ship and hit some significant challenges, challenges I could not handle, I could not control, and I could not overcome, these words became more than just a building block of memorization. They became an anchor for my life. When there was nothing else to hold on to, it was these verses that gave me the anchor I could hold on to. First, there is the form in which these words are written. You see, sometimes when I'm picturing the writers of the scriptures, I'm thinking that they're sitting at a table, like really milling what they should write, and they've got this master plan in place because they know this is gonna end up in the Bible, and this one's gonna have this section, and that one's gonna have that section, and that, how do all these fit together? Well, John, you've got deity, Paul, you've got the church stuff, and they're sitting trying to figure out and parsing these words and trying to figure out, not so. 
It was nothing like that. There was no master plan. They didn't picture all of this being woven together in the text and all of it working together. They didn't know what to picture. They just wrote what they saw. They just sat down and said, all I know is what I have seen and I have to write what I have seen. And one of the proofs of that is the prominence of women in the scriptures. Had these guys had a master plan, they would have not anchored it on the testimony of women. Women had no value in testimony in the culture. If they were sitting figuring out how to write something that would be most accepted, the last thing they would do is make it so foundational that women testified to the first one that Jesus revealed himself as Savior. Women were at the tomb first. They would never have based it on that. These men were just knowing they were experiencing something that was beyond explanation, and they did not think of how it would come together. They just knew they had to write it down. And these words from John, they are not a fine piece of literature and all grammatically correct. The truth is, this is so pieces and parted that it's hard to interpret in the original Greek. They gave it a term. He was in writer's ecstasy. There's no grammar in it. It's one run-on sentence from the first to the end of four. This is a guy who is just so pumped up that he just says, here's what I saw and here's what happened. And there's nothing pretty about it. He's just so excited that he had to write it all down and that's what he did. So why? Why was John so ecstatic to write a sentence like this? Well, here's what we know. We think about somebody so excited and we think, well, things must have been going great. He must have, like, known personal life on cruise. Faith he founded, just flying along. John's looking and that's why he's so excited because it's all kind of mapped out on how this is going to work out. Here's what we know about John's life. He was most likely living in Ephesus when he wrote this and likely after he'd been exiled to Patmos. Remember those two that I told you that were closest to Jesus along with John? Well, it was his brothers, James. James is dead and was sawn in half. The other one was Peter. Peter's dead too, most likely crucified. What about Paul? Paul's the main purveyor of the faith, the main apologist for the faith. Paul was writing stuff the church needed to know, would always need to know. Paul's dead too, beheaded in Rome. Well, what about the personal life of John? Maybe that's on cruise, that's going great. No. I often underestimate the cost of discipleship in the time of the first and these centuries. I kind of put myself and give myself an excuse. Well, they lived a simpler life. And these guys were just fishermen. They were outcasts. So the call to come and follow him and drop everything was somehow a little less costly for them than it was for us. No. It was incredibly costly. Incredibly costly. 
James and John were the sons of their father Zebedee. The culture thrived on small family businesses, and the families depended on the family to take care of each other. In particular, children were to take care of their parents as they aged. And John and James, with their parents' permission, are given permission to leave and go and follow Jesus. And in doing that, they knew they were giving away their security because now there's no one to take on the family business. John paid a great cost. James paid a great cost. And their family paid a great cost for their following Jesus. The worship team can go ahead and start coming up. John left everything to follow Jesus. And at the end of his life, his choice of discipleship left him poor, persecuted, and outcast. We always laugh. It's just like, no matter what we do, and I do the same thing, I'm not making fun of you, the eyes just all drift. It's like, squirrel. And, um, and I do the same thing. It's like, it's impossible to stop. So I'm just gonna let the worship team come up for just a second. Yeah, John, John left everything to follow Jesus. And at the end of his life, his choice of discipleship left him poor, persecuted, and outcast. And John writes these words having paid a huge cost to follow Jesus. Well, maybe it's the faith that he founded. Maybe that's going so well that he could be ecstatic about that. Like I've already pointed out, that the main leaders, the apostles, had been martyred in John's lifetime. There was tons of discord in the church there were attacks from inside religious thought from every angle. And now there were new attacks from Rome because Caesar was being elevated to God's status. And as he was, that brought Rome in more conflict with Christianity. And so a great persecution was happening. Here's the fact, folks. There was nothing in John's personal circumstances that explained the ecstasy and the excitement in which he writes these passages. Nothing. That's the beauty of this letter. Despite every personal circumstance being hard, despite the loss of all the main Christian leaders in the movement, despite infighting in the church, despite attacks from outside the church, despite the strongest power known on the face of the earth turning its force against the church, John writes with excitement and anticipation that he cannot control and cannot be contained with confidence and even slightly, he's not even slightly shaken by any of these circumstances. I want some of that. I want some of that. It's as if John is saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Everything you said about that's true. My personal life, not so great. I'm poor, yep, that's for sure. My family, that was a big cost. And the church, we're struggling a little bit. But, but none of that matters. Because what was from the beginning? Jesus. I've seen him. I've touched him. I've heard him. And he explains everything. And because he is who he said he is, none of that matters. Because I have seen Jesus. I have seen God. And he is so good. John did not care about circumstances because he'd been with Jesus. John could not be overwhelmed by circumstances because he had seen God. 
And there is the beauty and the wonder of these words. These words are the living testimony of a man who could not be slowed, quieted, or deterred by what could not stand because he had encountered the one who could not fail. And we are offered the same anchor. We are offered this same invitation. I told you much of my world had been shaken in the last 18 months in so many ways. One of those ways with the sickness of one of my child that many of you know about. We as a family have been fighting this illness for 15 years. And I finally got the chance to go back to Ukraine. And I did everything I could to make sure that everything was okay before I left. I had five straight weeks of reports that my daughter was okay and she was secure and she was safe. And so I felt safe to go. Every Thursday the report came in, every Thursday it was good and I felt permission to go and so I went. And I did a retreat and it was fabulous. And even on the Thursday when I was there in Ukraine, I got a report from her team. She's doing really well, 100% of what we asked of her. And four hours later I got a call saying that she needed to be airlifted to Denver to an ICU for her survival. And I couldn't reconcile it. I sat in a room in Ukraine. I called Delta. That was the call that took an hour and 50 minutes. And by the time they answered the phone, I had missed the opportunity to catch my flight. And I thought I may have just missed the opportunity to see my daughter before she dies. And I sit alone in a forest in a room in Ukraine and I have no one to call and I have no one to talk to and I can't do a thing and I'm suffocating because of the helplessness. But then I was able to say out loud in full truth, Jesus, I have heard your voice. I have touched you with my own hands and I have seen you and what you can do. And you are who you say you are, and nothing can change that. There's that saying, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until he's, all you need until he's all you have. That's what John knew. He's all he need because it's all I have. Because I knew Jesus, because I encountered Jesus like John, I was able to turn from one that what cannot stand to the solace of who cannot be shaken. This is the choice and invitation that sits before each one of us here today. This is the choice we get to make. Because it's undeniable that our world and all that we have tried to hold on to has been forever shaken. That's undeniable. And it cannot stand. For those of you who have never encountered Jesus, the invitation is to turn aside from what holds you back any fears that you have, any questions that you have, and confusion, and simply choose to try Him. Not have all the answers, just choose to try Him and choose to trust Him. There's no secret special prayer. For you, it's just the same choice Moses faced. There's no denying that there are fires everywhere, and it's up to you to decide whether you're gonna look at those fires and say, this is just weird and scary, or are you gonna look at the fires and say, maybe it's God, and turn to him. I urge you, turn aside and just try him. He will reveal himself to you. For those of us who know him, the charge is no less critical. Our challenge is to turn aside from the noise and that steals our encounters with Jesus. 
our encounters with the living word. We have seen and heard and tasted of him and still we get stolen from him. At least I do. I want to share something that I have written down in the inside of my Bible and I have discovered. My faith is only as strong as my last encounter with Jesus. That's just the truth that I've discovered. I get up in the morning to read my Bible and yes to pray, but those are just tools and rhythms. My ultimate goal is to encounter the living God because then I can say like John said, I have seen you, I have heard you, and I have touched you, and my hands have handled the word of life. And then everything that can be shaken is discarded for what cannot fail. Will you stand with me? This is a ministry time that we have. We always set aside a time to prayer, to respond to anything that's happened in the service. Could be a worship song, could be the message. I need to say to you that even as I was preparing this morning, I need to tell you, this is all true, what I've said. And I'm not there right now. I was there in Ukraine and I'm not there right now. I realized I've got some things to do. There are things that I have let come between me and that encounter. I've been there. I know what it's like to be there. I'm not there right now. So I'm going to step forward and get some prayer. If any of you others want to join me up there, but this is our time. As the worship team plays, our prayer team will come forward. And this is the time to come forward and just get prayer. It's not counseling. You're not going to be asked for details. It's just prayer. And why would you leave without prayer if that's what you need? So as the worship team plays, you can come forward for prayer if you need it. I know I'll be coming.